The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie. And today is episode 15. We'll be covering potentially America's youngest serial killer, Jesse Pomeroy. Jesse was the youngest person to be found guilty of first degree murder in Massachusetts history in 1874. Even though he was only 14 years old, the brutal and violent crimes he committed led to life in prison where he ultimately dies in 1932. You're probably wondering, how does a 14-year-old become a serial killer? And while we certainly don't have all the answers, we can start, as we usually do, from the very beginning. Jesse was born on November 29, 1859, in Charlestown, Massachusetts. As an infant, he develops an unknown ailment that leaves his right pupil scarred and covered in a thick white film. Some claim it's caused by cataracts, while others attribute it to a reaction to a viral infection or even potentially a reaction to the smallpox vaccine. Whatever causes uh, this white film to develop will severely affect Jesse throughout his life. So it's unclear from our source material exactly what happened to Jesse growing up. There are conflicting reports. We do know that his father was Thomas Pomeroy, and he was likely an abusive man. He served in the Civil War and worked at the Charlestown Naval Yard, according to some historians. I'll get into um, some examples of potentially Jesse's abusive childhood, but I also want to state that there are a lot of other sources that claim that Jesse and his older brother had a quite ordinary upbringing. So again, it's, there's just conflicting information out there. According to Roseanne Montillo for Crime Cider on CBS, Jesse is viciously bullied at school by students who were stronger, taller, and more physically dominant than he was. In turn, Jesse bullied other students who were weaker, shorter, and smaller than he was. He was a loner, preferring to spend his time reading dime novels that were available at the time. So these stories were comparable to today, like our violent video games, um, because they were filled with blood, gore, sex, war, conflicts, and general mayhem. His father, Thomas, uh, was rumored to frequently uh, beat Jesse with a horsewhip or a leather belt and often demanded that he strip completely naked in order to inflict additional punishment on his exposed skin. Now, Jesse has an older brother, uh, Charles, who's older by about 17 months. We're not sure what his experience growing up was, but I just want to state that there was an older brother also in the family. 
Jesse's mother was Ruth Ann Pomeroy, and she was potentially the only person in his life who provided any comfort to Jesse, or at the very least, maybe some understanding. She thought that the bullying that Jesse experienced was to blame for her son's problems, and that if the bullies would just stop targeting him, he would in turn stop targeting others. Ruth Ann saw his behavior, uh, and so an example of his off behavior was torturing and killing small animals. She sees this just as a sign of sadness. Well, we know how very wrong she would end up being. Okay, so now it's late 1871 in Chelsea, a city located immediately across the Charles River from Charlestown. And kids are starting to get brutally beaten by a mysterious assailant. So they characterize this assailant as a child like them, but he's bigger, he's taller, and he's stronger than them. Some of these children also experienced sexual assault. So they claim the boy would befriend them, give them gifts and money, and then travel with them to a far off place and have his way with them. This uh, assailant earns the nicknames the Red Devil and the Boy Torturer. Later, the Boston Globe will publish a description of this child and Ruth Ann is going to read it, and she's going to recognize this as her own son. So I think a lot of us will put ourselves in Ruth Ann's uh, shoes and say, well, if this was my child, what would I do? Would I turn them into the police? Would I try and get them help? Uh, well, Ruth Ann <clears throat> isn't really going to do either of those things. Instead, she decides that that the family can't stay in the area because they're going to catch Jesse if he does. So she just simply moves the family to South Boston. And unfortunately, the move does nothing to change Jesse's behavior. Jesse's crimes actually escalate during this period. And I'm purposely not going to give a lot of detail on the crime. Um, you can certainly look it up yourself. It is really even by true crime standards, pretty horrific. And since it involves children, I, I wanna be a little bit vague. So in August of 1872, a child is found tortured on the beach. And then in September, another child is discovered battered, raped, and bound to a telephone pole. But unlike the other victims, this recent one can offer a really accurate description of his attacker. So he mentions details like the fact that the boy's right eye was a curious shade of white that resembles a marble. Well, that's a really good description, and not many people are going to fit that. So Jesse ends up being arrested, and he's given a six-year sentence to the state reform school in Westboro. And some people might be a little shocked at six years, like that's not a very long sentence, but they did take Jesse's age into account uh, and he was still a child himself. So there was some leniency in the sentencing. Now, only one year goes by before Jesse's mother asks that Jesse be paroled. And surprisingly, this request is granted. It might be because Jesse is actually an ideal inmate. Uh, so he behaves himself. There were no problems. He also had a secure and seemingly healthy household that he could go back to, a place that would keep him busy and divert him from the occasional immoral idea. 
Jesse's required to assist his mother at her shop, and his brother had a paper route that he could help out on as well. The main worry, actually, was that Jesse would run into issues with his own neighbors, particularly from boys his own age. Now, the local police give the reformatory the reassurance that they'd actually be pleased to monitor events to make sure that Jesse doesn't end up being a victim himself. So Jesse is released to his mother's care on February 6th, 1874, at the age of 13. Despite being originally ordered to stay in the state reform school until he is 18 years old. And it won't be long until uh, Jesse's going to prove that this is a really, really terrible decision. Because just a little over a month after his release, a 10-year-old girl, Katie Curran, will go missing. And she's actually last seen around the Pomeroy store in Boston. She had gone out on her own to buy school supplies. Jesse is questioned and the store is searched, but nothing's discovered. So no arrests are made. And after five weeks, no evidence had turned up at all. That is until another victim surfaces. This time, it's a four-year-old boy named Horace Millen, and his body is discovered on a beach. So Horace is found by two other little boys who are searching for clams on the seashore, and they come across his body in a ditch. And what happened to Horace... Um is really disturbing. So his genitalia has also, has almost been completely severed from his body uh, and his the rest of his body is covered in X-shaped stabbing wounds. Additionally, the body had been burned in places. So when Horace's body is discovered, the police are notified and they actually find footprints at the scene. Now they're going to pay Jesse a visit because they're already suspicious about him. And when they go to question him, he's discovered bloody and with what appear to be defensive wounds on his skin. And not only that, but they also discover a bloody knife on him. And they're going to compare his boots to those uh, footprints that they had discovered at the scene of the crime. So Jesse's brought in by the police right away and they start questioning him. Even though they have a lot of physical proof, they also still want a confession. And in the end, it turns out to be much simpler than they anticipated. When questioned, Jesse admits to Horace's death, saying, I think I did. Uh, He also admits to murdering 27 additional people. And now that number has just like never been verified. We only know of the two murders. Unfortunately, um, or I don't know if it's unfortunate, Ruth has to sell her business in order to raise um, some much needed cash following Jesse's arrest. Uh, but things are only be only going to become uh, worse for Jesse because once Ruth Ann sells her business, the new owner wants to do some renovations. And when they begin those renovations, what they find is actually Katie Curran's decomposing body in the basement. And Jesse confesses to murder once again. On December 9th of 1874, just a few days after Jesse turns 15, his trial gets underway. But it only takes about a day and then it's over. Uh, So the jury rejects the defense's claim of insanity, but they were... Uh, kinder to Jesse because of his age. Even though the jury 
wants to give some lenience, the court disagrees and gives Jesse the death penalty. Now, I mentioned Pomeroy's attorneys used an insanity defense. They contend that he had what was known as moral insanity in the 19th century, and he had just an irresistible drive to torture and kill. They used Pomeroy's own admission that some mysterious force was actually driving him and forcing him to uh, torture and kill people against his will. And they used that statement as evidence of a mental illness. So the prosecution uses the argument that everyone is sane until proven differently. Uh, And they argue that there just simply is no proof um, that Jesse is actually insane. So they argue that he acted knowingly and he's liable because he took Horace to a remote location, brutally beat and killed him. So they say that they planned, that Jesse planned this attack uh, and it wasn't anything spur of the moment. Pomeroy also, they argue, demonstrated unusual talent and shrewdness and that his actions were not to be classed under the head of insane conduct, but of depravity. People were really curious as to why Jesse had committed these horrific crimes at such a young age, and they sought an explanation. So experts were hired, and each one had a different response, just like in trials today involving children. They thought Jesse must have been mentally ill, but despite extensive research, they didn't find any history of mental illness in Jesse's family. They claimed he was the offspring of a dysfunctional family, and indeed his parents were divorced and there had been verbal and physical abuse when they were together. Uh, They also came to the conclusion that he had been bullied, which had motivated him to in turn bully and want to kill people. They also suggested that he might have been envious of other um, children's good looks because he had a deformity uh, and also their safe and cozy home life. Or perhaps he had simply been playing out the violence that he read about in his dime novels. Just as some modern day psychiatrists believe that kids act out the violence they see on television or video games. Or perhaps he was simply born bad. And in actuality, each of those explanations could have been a tenable defense. But ultimately, the narrative put forward by the prosecution convinced the jury to convict Pomeroy and convinced the judge to give him the death penalty. Now, according to Montillo for CBS News, Jesse's actually not an isolated incident. We have other cases of children at that time committing murder. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb are two youths who followed in his footsteps. They abducted and killed Bobby Franks in 1924, merely to experience the feeling. In the 1960s, four-year-old Martin Brown was murdered by Mary Flora Bell and her companion, Norma Bell, both of whom were still quite young themselves. Uh, When they were 15 and 14, respectively, Cindy Collier and Shirley Wolfe prowled condominiums looking for victims to rob and stab to death. Furthermore, an 11-year-old, Nathan Abraham, was detained in 1999 for the murder of 18-year-old Ronnie Green. So they're part of a sizable, rapidly expanding group. Although psychologists would rather not 
categorize juvenile offenders as psychopaths, they have identified a pattern of behavior that comes under the category of conduct disorders. These disorders include characteristics like the inability to give meaning to other people's lives, a haughty sense of one's own importance, cruelty to others and animals, which is particularly problematic if it begins early in life, a lack of empathy and remorse, a lack of friendship, and a propensity for lying. So like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, Jesse was the youngest person in Massachusetts to be tried for the death sentence, uh, or to be tried and then given the death sentence at the time of his trial. And not only was his trial front page news, but there was a lot of discussion on whether he would actually be put to death. In the end, the death warrant still needed to be signed and a date for Jesse's execution set by the governor. And Governor William Gaston resisted carrying out this governmental duty. Jesse could only be spared from death by the Massachusetts Governor's Council. And then only if a simple majority of the council's nine members agreed to commute the death sentence. The council votes three times over the course of the following 18 months. And it's in the third secret vote in August of 1876 that Pomeroy's sentence is reduced to life in prison with solitary confinement. So Jesse is sent from the Suffolk County Jail to the state prison in Charlestown that evening on September 7th, 1876. And it's there that he starts his time in solitary confinement. And he's only 16 years old and nine months. So Jesse's actually gonna attempt to flee at least 12 times over the course of the following 50 years. He nearly succeeds one time when he redirects his cell's gas line to cause an explosion but the blast rendered him unconscious. Uh, In the end, he spends his time in prison learning to invest in the stock market, learning new languages, and writing poetry. He's moved to the state prison farm in Bridgewater, Massachusetts in 1929, where he would spend the remainder of his days. Three years later, he'll die from a heart attack on September 29th, 1932, just short of his 73rd birthday. Jesse ultimately spent 59 years of his life as a ward of the state, imprisoned, or in reform schools. It's the longest period of detention in American history. People are still left wondering why Jesse committed these murders. And the prevailing theories of the time, unfortunately, don't provide many answers. According to A&E, when attempting to explain Jesse's atrocities, his contemporaries primarily relied on three explanations. One was that he had moral insanity or an irresistible impulse to kill and torture people, the precursor to 20th century descriptions of psychopathy. Two, his expectant mother had visited the butcher where her husband worked and Jesse was imprinted in utero with a maternal impression and was therefore formed before birth with a thirst for blood. That has to be by far my favorite explanation, Um, but there was a third, and that was that he emulated the violence of white renegades um, as represented in his frontier dime novels to the point of being possessed by it. Uh, Because starting at age nine, he devoured these books, and he probably read around 60 of them. 
The Jesse Pomeroy case was entangled in the moral panic of the late 19th century concerning the effects of these dime novels, uh, which served as significant historical backdrop for his actions. Many Americans had the opinion that Jesse's risky reading habits were, in the words of one editorial, sufficient explanation of his murderous inclinations. We would really likely disagree in modern times that that was the cause, but at the time it was a big argument. Unfortunately, there just isn't a good or sufficient reason for why Jesse behaved the way that he did. Today, we would likely label him a psychopath, but in history, he'll forever be remembered as America's youngest serial killer, even if he did only have two victims. And that's it for the case of uh, Jesse Pomeroy. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, we'd really appreciate if you could rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or um, by email at Historical True Crime Pod at gmail.com. And we will see you next week for another dark and twisted case from history. We'll see you then. <laughs>